Psalm chapter 5. Give ear to my words, O Lord, consider my groaning. Give attention to the sound of my cry, my King and my God, for to you do I pray. O Lord, in the morning you hear my voice. In the morning I prepare a sacrifice for you and watch. For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. But I, through the abundance of your steadfast love, will enter your house. I will bow down toward your holy temple in the fear of you. Lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness because of my enemies. Make your way straight before me. For there is no truth in their mouth. Their inmost self is destruction. Their throat is an open grave. They flatter with their tongue. Make them bear their guilt, O God. Let them fall by their own counsels. Because of the abundance of their transgressions, cast them out, for they have rebelled against you. But let all who take refuge in you rejoice. Let them ever sing for joy and spread your protection over them, that those who love your name may exult in you. For you bless the righteous, O Lord. You cover him and with favor as with a shield. This is God's word. Let's pray together. Father, now that we have read your word, we pray, Lord, that you would give us ears to hear what the Spirit would say to us. God, we pray that through the teaching of Psalm chapter 5, you would minister to each of our hearts. Lord, we know that all scripture is breathed out by you, and it's profitable for teaching and reproof and correction and training in righteousness. And so, Lord, it's with that faith that we turn now to Psalm chapter 5, a faith that this is your word and that through it, you can transform us into the people that you've called us to be. Lord, that's what we desire. We want to live our lives the way that you have designed us to live them because God, we know that's what will bring you glory and that's what will bring us the greatest good. So, Lord, as we consider this psalm now, we just invite you to speak to us, Holy Spirit, minister to us, and bless your people in your word, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Why don't you go ahead and grab a seat? Great to see all of you. Great to worship with all of you today. I'm like shaky. All I've had is coffee and a sprinkled donut. I'm like, I'm about to have an outer body experience right now. Um... But great to be with you and uh, very excited about Psalm chapter 5. We are only five psalms into the Psalter and already we're starting to learn quite a bit about David's prayer life. And as we're learning from David's prayer life, it's teaching all of us much about our own prayer lives and also teaching us much about the God who we pray to. And this morning in Psalm chapter 5, this is not going to be an exception. We're going to continue learning more about a life of prayer and about, again, the God that you and I pray to. It's been said, prayer is not about getting God in alignment with your will, but getting your will in alignment with God's. Of course, Jesus taught us to pray to the Father, not my will, but your will be done. But if we're being honest with ourselves, how much of our prayer life is the equivalent of speaking to God like he's our servant and not the other way around? It's almost like every day we wake up and we're the head of the company and we walk into the boardroom and God's sitting on the other side of the table and 
We get on the whiteboard and say, okay, here's the plan for today. And we tell God what's going to happen. And then we say, let's go carry that out, okay? On three, let's go team. And we just want God just to do our bidding in the world. We want God to do all the things that we already have stored up in our heart. We're just coming to God to seek a little bit of blessing and some divine aid to see our will come true. One of the reasons why Psalm 5 then is so unbelievably helpful is because we see in this psalm, David attempting to align his heart and his will with God's heart and God's will. ESV, uh, the ESV rather, titles this psalm, Lead Me in Your Righteousness. Lead Me in Your Righteousness. This comes from verse 8, of course, and it is the central request of Psalm chapter 5. David wanting God to lead him in his divine will. David's not coming to God in Psalm 5 saying, God, why don't you just bless what I'm about to do? David's coming to God in Psalm 5 and saying, Lord, I need to understand your will so I know what I should do. This is mature prayer in Psalm chapter 5 and there's much for us to learn from it. Now, like our last Psalm, Psalm 5 eventually became a part of Israel's formal worship. We see that in the superscription that begins right before, before verse 1. We read there, to the choir master for the flutes. Gosh, we need flutes in our church, don't we? How rad would that be to be like, hey, let's have flutes today. Last week it was stringed instruments. This week it's flutes. It must have been amazing to be a part of the congregational worship life of Israel 3,000 years ago. There was percussions and stringed instruments and wind instruments and clapping and shouting and singing. And it was just such a dynamic and vibrant musical life among God's people. And so ultimately Psalm 5, like Psalm 4, was set to music. And God's people would use this psalm as a corporate worship song, declaring their dependence on the Lord. But first, before it was a worship song, it was for sure a prayer of the great King David. Now, structurally, there's three petitions in this psalm or three requests or three things that David is asking of God. And for simplicity's sake, I've broken them down this way for you. The three petitions are this. First, it's hear me. So the first thing that he's asking is, God, just hear me. This is verses one through three. The second petition is lead me in verse eight. And then finally, it's bless us. He gets into the plural there. He's not just thinking about himself, but in 10 through 12, it's bless us. And we'll talk about who us is when we get there. Now, each of these petitions in Psalm chapter five is immediately followed with some reasons why David is asking for that thing in the first place or why he thinks God should answer his prayer. These reasons begin with the word for, which means because. So David is going to, in this psalm, kind of have a flow like this. He's going to say, Lord, do this because of that. Lord, do this because of that. And then a third time, Lord, do this because of that. This is the way that the prayer is structured. So let's look then at petition number one. What's the first thing that David is asking of the Lord as he comes to God in prayer in Psalm chapter five? It's hear me. Again, look at verse one. David says, give ear to my words, O Lord. Consider my groaning. 
Give attention to the sound of my cry, my King and my God, for to you do I pray. O Lord, in the morning you hear my voice. In the morning I prepare a sacrifice for you and watch. So David here, he cries out to God in prayer. Notice that he says, give ear to my words, O Lord. Consider my groaning. Give attention to the sound of my cry. David here in Psalm 5 is once again distressed and he's praying. Verse 8 tells us the occasion for this prayer is because of my enemies. But we'll get more into that in a moment. For now, just notice that again, David is distressed and he's praying. And he wants God to hear his prayer. Now, four times David addresses God directly in these first three verses. The first and the fourth direct address to God uh, come in the form of David using God's proper name, which is Yahweh, Y-H-W-H. And so the first and fourth address to God, David is using the word Yahweh, which is, as you know, God's covenant name, God's special name that he revealed to his people, starting with Moses at the burning bush in Exodus 3. And so everywhere that you see in the Old Testament, Lord in all caps, the translators are trying to help you to understand that the Hebrew word there is Yahweh. And this again is the name of God personalized. It's God's personal name that he has given to his people. And so David begins by calling on the Lord. The second and third usages of God's name here, he says, my God, or my king rather, and my God. This is in verse two. My king and my God. How many people want a God, but they don't want a king? There are many that way who say, oh, I'd love to have a God I could call on, kind of like a genie. The idea of having a king who actually commands things in my life, who's actually in charge of my life, not so interested in that. But friends, you can't have it one way without the other. If, if you're wanting God to be available to you, if you want God to hear you, if you want to belong to the Lord, he's going to be your king. He's going to be the one that's in charge. He's going to be the one who knows best. And David's okay with that. In fact, David finds great comfort in that because David was a king. And David knew that as the king of a, a nation, he had responsibilities to take care of his citizens. So then when David thinks about God as his king, he goes, you know what? God has a responsibility to take care of me because I belong to him. And this would give David great confidence in his prayer life to come before the Lord who has committed himself <clears throat> to his people. Now in verse 3, we see David's confidence. <clears throat> in verse 3, David is totally confident that the Lord does hear his morning prayers. And so he says in verse 3, I prepare a sacrifice for you. And then he watches or waits expectantly <clears throat> excuse me, for an answer. Now what does that mean when he says, I prepare a sacrifice for you? What is David getting at there? Well, in the ESV, there's a footnote. And if you go down to the bottom of the page, they give you an alternate translation for that expression. And the alternate translation is, <clears throat> I direct my prayer to you. Now, the reason why they give that alternate translation is because that Hebrew phrase there is used in connection to arranging a sacrifice on the altar. So it was taking the animal parts 
putting them on an altar and arranging them in a certain way. Thus, it's sometimes translated, I prepare a sacrifice. But it can also refer to arranging all sorts of other things. And so in this context, the context is prayer. And it seems likely that David is saying here, I will sort of arrange my prayers before you, Lord. I'm going to arrange or organize or direct my prayers before you. And he does. And then he says that he's going to sit and he's going to watch, wait expectantly for God's answer. Now that right there is a posture of faith in prayer. Have you ever wondered what it looks like to pray in faith? We talk about that a lot in the church. You know, we need to pray in faith. What does that look like? Well, we see it right here. Faith not only draws us to pray, but it draws us to expect the answer to what we've asked for. Let me say that again. Faith not only draws us to pray, but it draws us to expect the answer for the thing that we've asked for. In Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1, we read this. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. So there in Hebrews 11, we understand that when we, when we try to wrap our minds around faith, Faith is an assurance or a confidence that we have of things that we are hoping for. So even though the thing is not here yet, we are believing, we are trusting, we are assured, we are confident that we will in fact possess that thing. So when it comes to faith and praying in faith, what that looks like is that even though we are requesting something that has not happened yet, we are trusting and we are confident that that thing will come to pass. Now the question is, where does that kind of confidence in prayer come from? It almost seems a little um, presumptuous. Where does a person get that kind of confidence in prayer? Well, we're going to get to that in a moment. So hold that thought. For now, just understand this. The petition is, hear me, and David expects that God will, The question is, well, why does he expect that? Verses four through seven are going to give us the answer. So look at your Bible again. Psalm chapter five, verse four. Here comes the because, right? It begins with the word for. He says, for or because you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. But I, through the abundance of your steadfast love, will enter your house. I will bow down toward your holy temple in the fear of you. So why is David confident that God is going to hear him? Simply put, David says, because you don't hear the wicked and I am not among them. That's verses four through seven, as as simply as I can put it. He says, because you don't hear the wicked or you don't allow the wicked in your presence, but I am not among them. I'm not part of that group. So that's why you're going to hear my prayers. Okay, let me break this down here. Let me break those two ideas in half that he doesn't hear the wicked and David is not among them. And let's explain this. So he begins with the big idea in verse four. 
Verse 4 says this again. He says, you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. David says, listen, God does not delight in wickedness. He does not smile at it. He doesn't laugh at it. He doesn't enjoy it one bit. We might, but God doesn't. It's not funny to him. It's not pleasurable for him. God hates wickedness. Why? Because God sees sin for what it truly is. God sees sin for what it truly is. Sin is destruction to the creation that God loves. When you think about what sin does, it is destroying the very creation that God loves. Whether it's you sinning against God, what's happening there? When when a person sins against God, they're hurting themselves. When you sin against another person, you're hurting that other person. But either way, you are hurting the creation that God loves. And God hates that. God is for blessing his creation. I mean, just go back to the creation account. In Genesis 1 and 2, God is creating the world. And he creates Adam and Eve and he sets them in this beautiful garden, a garden called delight. And everything that God creates for this this couple is only good. And when God surveys everything that he created, he looks back and he delights in the creation and he says that it is all very good. God had just blessed his creation. And then sin happens in Genesis 3 and destruction enters in and the very Objects of God's love are now experiencing destruction and God in his love is opposed to that. Therefore, David declares, evil may not dwell with you. For those who choose the path of sin and destruction, they have no place with God. He's not about that. They are not on his team. They are not doing God's will. Many movies have had a scene in it where you've got like the good guy and the bad guy and they have like a moment of conversation. And the bad person will look at the good guy and say, you know, you and I, we're not all that different. Then the good guy will look at him and say, you and I are nothing alike. That was my best attempt at acting. No future in Hollywood, huh? But that's God's attitude toward the evil or toward evil and toward those who do evil. God looks and says, you and I are nothing alike. I don't delight in that one bit. I am opposed to wickedness. I am opposed to evil. God's holiness and his righteousness means that evildoers cannot dwell in his presence. So that's the big idea. And then verses four through five unpack this idea with some specifics. It kind of puts meat on the bones rather in verses 5 and 6, there's, there's four kinds of sinners and then there's four responses from God toward those sins in verses 5 and 6. The four kinds of sinners described there are the proud, evildoers, liars or deceivers, and the bloodthirsty. Okay, those are the different kinds of sinners described there. And then God's response is that he rejects, that he hates, that he destroys, that he 
abhors. Those are some strong, strong words about God's response toward the, the, the sins and sinful actions of people. Again, God rejects, he hates, he destroys, he abhors. But these are fitting words. Because again, as I just mentioned, what sin is doing is it is destroying the very creation that God loves with all of his heart. I mean, let's take each of these briefly in order. When you think about pride, what does pride do? Well, pride works itself out both vertically and horizontally. Vertically, pride looks like this. A person says, I don't need God. I don't need God. Horizontally, pride looks like this. I'm better than you. For whatever reason, I'm better than you, which is going to work itself out in some form of oppression or uh, mistreatment of other people. Evildoers, that's just those who are devoted to or committed to doing evil. Liars can and do bring lots of pain and misery and grief to other people. The bloodthirsty are those who are devoted to violence and harming others. What do all four of those have in common? Again, they all contribute to the destruction of other people. Therefore, God's holy wrath is kindled against people that are hell-bent on destroying others. Okay, let's summarize and then move on. David here so far has said, God, hear my prayer. Why? Because you don't hear the wicked. And now in verse 7, but he's going to say, essentially, I'm not among them. That but tips us off to the fact that this is a contrast or a turning point right here. And he's going to give The contrast, again, verse 7, But I, through the abundance of your steadfast love, will enter your house. He says, I will enter your house. Again, you don't dwell with the wicked, you don't hear the wicked, but I will dwell in your house. Why? Family, pay attention. This is the most important part of the whole sermon. Pay attention right now. Why is David going to enter God's house? You would expect him to say, but I, because of my own righteousness, because of my own goodness that is so far superior to the wicked, I will enter your house. But David does not say that. What does he in fact say? Look at verse 7. How does David enter God's house? He says, through the abundance of your steadfast love. So again, we would expect David to say, because of my goodness, I get to enter your house. I'm not like the wicked people. He doesn't go there. No, 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 family, listen. He says that the only reason that he has access to God's presence, the only reason that God will hear him instead of the wicked is because of God's grace. Because of God's grace. Because God has given to David his abundant steadfast, unrelenting love. It is the generous, abounding, overflowing love of God toward his people. And that alone, that allows David to enter God's presence and have a hearing with Almighty God. In the Old Testament, we read that God chose Israel, not because Israel was amazing, not because they were the greatest nation on earth. God chose them because he simply loved them and he placed his love on them. Deuteronomy 7 
7 through 8 tells us this, and it's kind of God not mocking his people, but kind of setting the record straight for them. Deuteronomy 7, 7. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers. God there is saying, again, it's, it's not because of something inherent in you that you're like the, the greatest nation on earth and therefore God has to bless you and love you. No, 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 no. The reason that God chose you is just because God loves you. There's no other explanation for it. So, the basis for David standing before God is grace. And it is also grace that is the source of his new life of righteousness. What does he say in the rest of the verse? He says, I will bow down toward your holy temple in the fear of you. In other words, God's grace is what saved David and gave David access to God. And now because of his access to God, because of his standing before God, David's life responds in a certain way. David becomes a worshiper of God. David bows, bows down in his holy temple. And David now fears God. We all know the song, Amazing Grace. And we're familiar usually with the first stanza. Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. But listen to the next line. It gets exactly at what we just read here. Twas grace that taught my heart to fear. It was God's grace that taught David's heart to fear. It is that once we receive the grace of God, that our hearts are completely reconstructed to now start fearing and reverencing God and wanting to honor God and wanting to live lives of worship before the Lord. Let me say it differently. David's good works or David's righteous living are the result of God's grace and not the basis for it. They are the result of God's grace and not the basis for it. And the same is true for Christians today. Family, here, Ephesians chapter 2, 8 through 10. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So Paul says the same thing. You were saved by grace, not by your works. And now that you've been saved by grace, God has prepared some good works to go walk in. So the basis of our salvation is grace. And then good works flow out of this church. We can never get this wrong. We lose this, we lose the gospel. Getting this wrong is the summary of nearly every false religion on planet earth. Almost every false religion has some form of this thinking. God will love me or forgive me or accept me because I'm a good person or because I measure up or because I can check these boxes. That's wrong. 
That is completely wrong and it's false and it will send you to hell. We can never lose sight of this. Paul said the reason God structured it this way is so that nobody can boast. Here's what he means. If it was about God accepting me because I'm so good or because I followed all the rules, then when I stand before God on judgment day and he accepts me, I get to say this, I earned it. I earned it. And the reason that person didn't make it is because I'm better than them. But the fact that you're saved by grace means that when you stand before God and you enter into heaven, you say, it was all you. You get all the glory, God, for all of eternity. It had nothing to do with me. I was a sinner. I was lost. And you rescued me by your grace. This is the gospel. And this produces humble, grateful, gracious people. Christians who get this, who really understand the gospel, do not look down on the wicked. Ew, I can't believe those people. No way. Christians who understand this look at even the most wicked people and we say to ourselves, but for the grace of God, there go I. And so, out of anywhere on planet Earth where a group of people should be gracious and loving and empathetic and welcoming, the church should be that place. Because we know, but for the grace of God, we are lost. We're broken. We're sinful. So David says, hear me. Why? Because you don't hear the wicked, but I'm not among them. Okay, I know that's only point one, and we're like almost 30 minutes in. But that was 80% of my sermon. The rest of this is going to go really quickly. Petition number two, verse eight, lead me. Lead me. Here's what verse eight says. Lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness because of my enemies. Make your way straight before me. So this is the second petition. David says, lead me. And now we're at the heart of the prayer request, right? The first request is just, God, hear me. But what does he want God to hear him praying about? This is it. He's saying, God, lead me in your righteousness or make your way straight before me. What David wants here is he wants God's standards. He wants God's truth, God's guidance, God's will to be revealed to him. He's praying for God to show him what his will is. And we can and should ask for the same thing. It's, it's not... God, make my way straight before me, right? Just simply asking God to bless your plans and your path. God, will you work out my way before me today? David's like, I don't care about my way. Lord, make your way straight before me. God, get me on your path. Get me inside of your will. Again, how much of our prayer time is spent basically saying, God, help me just get my will done Hey, God, can you, can you just show up and kind of partner with me in my plans? I've got some things I want to accomplish. But gosh, I could do it a lot better if I had omnipotence on my side. Help me out, Lord. We ought to pray, God, show me your will. Show me your ways. And then help me to live that way. Now we can answer the question that I posed earlier when we were talking about praying in faith. We were talking there about expecting to receive the things that we ask for. 
And the question I asked was, where does that sort of confidence come from in a person's prayer life? The answer is that it comes from praying prayers that are in accordance to God's will. David is literally praying, God, show me your will so that I can do that. That's the kind of prayer God's very happy to answer. Very willing and ready to answer. In 1 John 5.14, we read, And this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. Where's the confidence come from? What kinds of prayers could we pray and then sit there like David and say, I'm going to watch for the answer to happen. Prayers that are according to the will of God. Well, Daniel, how do I know the will of God? The word of God. We read the scriptures and we start learning that God's will is revealed to us there. And when you start praying in alignment with what God already desires for you in his will, you can sit back and say, this is about to happen. So you could be sitting there praying, Lord, help me to begin to love my spouse more sacrificially. Let me just die to myself and just serve her or serve him more fully. God's not sitting in heaven going, yeah, I don't know if I really want to give you that. God's like, it's about time, Daniel. Wake up. That's what I desire for you. That's what I want for you. And so again, the word of God tells us the will of God. And when we pray for those things, God eagerly, gives those sorts of things to his people. We can sit and we can watch with expectation, expecting that God is going to answer his pra- or our prayers. Now, why was David praying for this guidance in his life? The reason is because his enemies are cunning and deceptive. In verse 9, he says, there is no truth in their mouth. So they're just deceptive liars. He even says their inmost self is destruction. He means their inner life is completely rotten. It's corrupt. So they're not just people who do bad things. They're bad people, thus they do bad things. So David needs God's will to be clear to him because he is surrounded by smooth and persuasive speech from people who are not godly. He's being bombarded by the destructive advice of the wicked and he's getting potentially confused and he's saying, I don't don't want to listen to that anymore. God, lead me in your will. Speak to me, guide me about what's actually true and about how we should go. He's got terrible advice coming at him in every direction. We can relate. There's so many other voices that are speaking to us constantly and a lot of it sounds really persuasive. A lot of the secular ideas and the popular ideologies that are being uh, shared in our, our culture are hitting us a million miles an hour. And some of this stuff, you go, well, actually, that kind of makes a lot of sense. And so it would be great for us to pray a prayer like this on a regular basis. Lord, help me to understand your will. Help me to see things the way that you see it so that I can be guided in your ways. I don't want to go the way of the wicked in the way of destruction. Keep me on the straight and narrow. He also says their throat is an open grave. He calls them flatterers. But that picture of the open grave is so helpful. I mean, picture walking through a cemetery and there's a six foot deep rectangular hole that's just cut in the ground that you can fall into. Right? They just left an open grave there for people to stumble into. That's the kind of speech of the wicked. Their words lead people to their death and to destruction. 
So he says, lead me in your righteousness because my enemies are cunning and deceptive. Third and finally, we get to the last petition in verses 10 through 12, where now David just simply says, God, bless us. And this blessing is going to come in two ways. The first is by banishing the wicked. He's got all of these deceptive people that are trying to pull him away from God's will. And he basically says in verse 10, Lord, just banish the wicked. Look at verse 10. Make them bear their guilt, O God. Let them fall by their own counsels. Because of the abundance of their transgressions, cast them out, for they have rebelled against you. Now that first statement is crushing. Make them bear their own guilt, O God. But notice that he's not asking for lightning bolts from heaven to come and strike these people dead. He's not asking God to just open up a pit in the earth and swallow these wicked people down. You guys remember that story in the Old Testament? That's not a good one for bedtime reading with young kids. But he's not saying that. He's not like, God, just strike them dead right here on the spot. In fact, look what he is asking. He's saying, let them fall by their own counsels. And in other words, he's saying, God, let their evil return on their own heads. All this scheming that they're trying to do, the ways that they're trying to destroy other people, just let that return back on them. So Lord, bless us by first banishing the wicked and then second, by giving joy and protection to me and all others who also trust in you. We see this in verse 11. David says, but let all who take refuge in you rejoice. Let them ever sing for joy. Did you know that when God saves you, it leads to joy? Unspeakable joy. He's saying, Lord, let those who take refuge in you rejoice. Give us your joy, Lord. And it's not just short bursts of joy here and there. He qualifies it in the next statement. He says, let them ever sing for joy. For those of us who have put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, our future is going to be one of constant, unceasing joy. That's it. Permanent happiness in the presence of God through all of eternity. No tears, no sorrow, no suffering, no sickness, no death. None of the things that grieve our hearts right now. Because with the banishment of the wicked, God is banishing every single thing that disrupts our happiness. That's what the new creation will be. Pure bliss in the presence of God. I want you to notice as we close the open-ended offer of the gospel in verse 11. David's not being restrictive here. He's not being skimpy here, right? He's saying, let all who take refuge in you experience this. David's not concerned that there's a limited supply of joy, so he has to kind of hoard it all to himself and his buddies. David knows the heart of God is so big and so expansive. He says, Lord, let every single person who would come to their senses and find their refuge in you rejoice and experience this joy. If you want to, you even now can take refuge in the Lord. 
Christ's open arms on the cross 2,000 years ago tell us that his love is big enough to embrace all who trust in him. There's no limit to this. Anybody who flees to him and looks to him and his life and his death on the cross and his resurrection from the grave and says, that's what I'm banking my life on, you will experience God's forgiveness and God's joy and God's salvation. So God, give us your joy. And he also, of course, talks about God's protection. Spread your protection over them that those who love your name may exult in you. That's an interesting word, exult. It basically means delighting in. I love this again. When God saves us and when God protects us because he's our God and our King and our Savior, it actually causes us to start delighting in him. If you've come to church this morning and you think that Christianity sounds boring or that Christians are living a life where they're going, oh, I really wish I could live another way, but I'm scared of going to hell. And so I'm going to do these things that I really don't want to do because God's making me. You're totally not getting it. When God gets a hold of us, it changes us. We delight in the Lord. We exult in him because he's awesome and he's wonderful and he's kind to his people. And he's a good father. And he fills our hearts with joy and gladness. In Psalm 3, we learn that God is a shield of protection around his people. Now here in Psalm 5, we see that God's favor is like a shield around his people. If you belong to Jesus Christ, then you are literally hemmed in on every side with God's favor. His favor is all around you. You are his son. You are his daughter. He loves you. You are the apple of his eye and his heart is only ever to bless you. It's amazing. These are the realities for those of us who belong to the Lord. I hope you can see Psalm 5 is a great prayer. It's an amazing prayer. It's an amazing song. David says, hear me because although you don't hear the wicked, By your grace, I'm not among them. Lead me in your ways because the wicked are persistent and persuasive in trying to pull me away. Bless me by banishing the wicked and giving joy and protection to all of us who trust in you. David says, and Lord, as you do that, we will exult in you and ever sing for joy. Amen? Amen. Amen. Father, you are such a good God. If only the world could taste and see that the Lord is good, they'd be with us even now worshiping you. God, we know what it is to belong to our great God and our great King who loves us with an everlasting love. And Lord, I pray this morning that you would once again stir our hearts that once again you would strengthen our faith and our trust in you. Because like the psalmist of Psalm 5, we do have enemies, so to speak, all around us, the devil and the world and the flesh. And we have got so many persuasive words and so many flattering tongues and so many deceptive lies that are being shared with us every single day. And sometimes, to be honest, Lord, it's dizzying. And it's disorienting. And so this morning, as your people, we would say, like David, some 3,000 years ago, Lord, would you 
lead us in your righteousness? Would you lead us in your way? God, would you this week, as we get into your word, God, would you give us understanding? Would you help keep us firmly rooted on the truth of your word? Would you help us to distinguish between truth and lies in the culture around us? And Lord, would you help us to walk in the way that we should go? We want to do that, Lord, because we trust you. We trust your way more than we trust our own. Lord, we want to experience your favor and your blessing. We want to be under the shadow of your wings, protected by you. And so, Lord, this week, guide us. And Lord, as you do, I pray that we would be a people who are exulting in you, ever singing for joy, rejoicing in you, because we're experiencing the blessing of belonging to you. So Lord, put a new song on our lips this week. Fill our hearts with joy and gladness that the world cannot take away. And Lord, lastly, we pray that so many more, maybe it's our family members, maybe it's our friends, maybe it's people we're working with, are going to school with, or people that live in our neighborhood who are right now far from you, Lord, would you help them also to find their refuge in you, to trust in you, Jesus, so that they also might share in the joys of belonging to the King of the earth. So Lord, we ask this now for your glory, for our good, and for the good of the nations. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.